Andrea Pritzker, Master of Wine. Good morning. Good morning, Simon. Good morning, Richo. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Great to um, to have you. Richo, well, let's, let's start with what, Pritzker. Where's the name from and also a bit of an accent and who, who are you? Where did you get to where you are? I know that's a pretty broad question, but, um, you know, just fill the listeners in on who is Andrea Pritzker. Sure. So the last name is originally Ukrainian, but from many generations back. Right. Um, uh, and actually it was Pritsky, and then they migrated to Canada and the US and they added an R uh, to the name to make it sound a little bit more Germanic. And that worked. Most uh, German speaking people think it's a German name, but it's not. It's originally Ukrainian. There you go. They've right. been in Canada and the US since the late 1800s. So I'm, I think, fourth, fifth generation Canadian originally, uh, and now I'm Australian as well. Uh, which part of Canada do you hail from? I grew up in Toronto. So, uh, yeah, if I return there, my Toronto twang also comes back. <laughs> Toronto twang. Do you say out? Out? Do you say out and about? Yes. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, we grew up watching Degrassi Junior High. So it was, <laughs> I mean, is that, actually, is that actually a TV show in Canada or did they just blast it over to Australia? <laughs> that was a great show, and the, the the huge. I'll never forget all that blue eyeshadow she used to wear. Um, oh uh, well, no, the, the the funniest bit on that from from all time for me was um, Joey Jeremiah, and he's in one of the scenes because he was in that band, right? But anyway, he's in one of the scenes, and he's wearing a uh, fits. No, he's wearing a Footscray. Um, a, a, a VFL jumper. Really? Yeah, oh. on, on a Canadian TV show in the 80s. It was like, uh, I've got a screenshot of it somewhere. It's one of the most Hilarious. bizarre cross-cultural things of all time. Anyway, do, do you find a bit of a, a, speaking of cross-cultural, Andrea, do you find that Canadians and Aussies have a similar kind of a, a vibe? Absolutely. I, I think Canadians in general are a little bit more introverted as a sort of group than than Australians, but in terms of... Uh, the way we think about the world, our values, um, how we like to enjoy life, it's very, very similar. So I found moving to Australia to be really easy from a cultural point of view. I, I guess my point of that question was leading into, is there a similarity in the wine industries too? I mean, I know there's the LCBO over in Canada, so that's quite different. But Yeah, they, the, the industries are actually very different. Um, Canada is still very much dominated by a prohibition mentality. Uh, hence, uh, there are government monopolies across each province of, uh, of Canada, and they control uh, the entire liquor industry within their province. So wow. the LCBO, which is the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, they are the biggest buyer of wine and spirits in the world, yeah. because they're buying for about 10 million people, um, but they're the only game in town, basically. Yeah. So. Um, it's a very different idea about how to uh, sell and promote um, wine and spirits, and it's very much about uh, keeping it um, away from the, the populace in some ways uh, or controlling it a bit. No, preaching to the choir mm -hmm. there because I lived in Sweden for three years. So, Sistemba Lager, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, Simon, if you ever go over to Sweden <clears throat> and you want to buy some cold alcohol, you've got to be very organised. Oh, really? You can't buy cold booze there. It's, it's just in, not in the fridges. No, they don't have fridges. Oh, right. And the fridges, well, not the fridges, the whole <laughs> store shuts at 7 p.m. 
Right, so you, so if you're at, if you're not there by seven, and then Saturday three pm, not open on a Sunday. So no word of a lie. And, and sounds like Perth not long. long ago. <laughs> <laughs> hello to all of our Perth listeners. Yes, hello. <laughs> Sorry. Have you seceded from Australia well, yet? No. Um, so I had it's a, only six am, which is one <laughs> yeah, saving no grace. <laughs> uh, we'll just cut this out of the podcast, shall we? <laughs> but no, I had a Swedish friend uh, who came over to Australia ten years ago with his parents. And it was a Sunday, and I said, "What are you doing? It's such a nice afternoon. What are you are you taking your parents to the park or something? Nah, we're going to the drive-through because they just couldn't the believe of it. Well, they couldn't believe you could drive in a car and buy alcohol, <laughs> yeah, and it's cold. Completely astonishing as well. I could not believe that it, that existed. It was against everything that uh, all of <laughs> Canadian monopolies would have um, uh, thought of it. So it's amazing. <laughs> Amazing to see. Oh, that's yes. so funny. Uh, oh man, I just I love that. So um, so for t- prohibition um based, there, are there still speakeasy bars and things? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's funny. Um, it it really was uh, left over from that year of prohibition and the idea that it was best alcohol was best controlled by the government in a post prohibition era rather than allowing free market. It has changed substantially in Ontario, even in the last uh, 10, 15 years. So they now are open on Sundays, which they can use. Um, And, uh, you know, you can actually browse the merchandise and like pick up bottles. I mean, when my parents were young people, um, the bottles weren't on display. You went to a counter and they handed you a a list that looked like a bus schedule and you just kind of ticked the list off and then (laughs) they, they boxed it up and, and, brought it out to you already in a box as if, you know, it was the most prohibited goods ever. So a lot has changed uh, in Canada. It's a very, very different cultural thing, isn't it? And by golly, the Swedes, they love their Systembolagen, so you don't ever pay it out to them. But do the Canadians like their LCBO if they're living in Ontario? They they absolutely do. And um, there's also like a separate store that sells just beer called the beer store, which is a very popular <laughs> creative name. Well. Uh, so both of those are incredibly uh, popular, but um, yeah, it, it can get pretty hectic on holiday weekends and things like that. You should plan accordingly and try and buy ahead of time. You have to be more organized. That's yeah. for sure. No. So we've established the whole Canadian thing. How did you get to Australia, Andrea? So I came out here on a working holiday visa. My husband is Australian. We met um, in France. Um, He was just traveling through. I was about to do a program in Bordeaux and uh, we did the whole long distance thing for a year. And then I came out here to to see what Australia was like, to see um, whether uh, I would get along with John. And um, a little over 20 years later, here we are. Had you had much Australian wine at that point? I'd had only a little bit and really what Australia exported and still uh, in terms of what you see in, in Canada was the big brands. So, you know, Wolf Blast, um, Hardee's, those kinds of wines. Yeah. I hadn't probably had any of the really fine wines of Australia until I got here. I think it's part of, partly that cultural thing again with your government monopolies that the big companies have a lot of power to exert because they have flexibility. And I'll give you an example. Systembolagat had a tender system, Simon, for wines. So the category manager would look three years ahead and say in two years' time or whatever, we need 50,000 litres of McLaren Val Shiraz, 14.5% alcohol. It has to smell and taste X, Y, Z. It's got to cost this and it needs to be packaged like that. Right. So not everyone can do that. But if you're, if you're Jacob's Creek, you know, yep. you can just 
pivot and make yeah, something yeah. like well, Wolf Blast or whatever. So I, I guess it's the same, the same system to get wines into those monopolies in Canada. It's exactly that. And there is a sort of mandate of wanting to have the same range across a huge number of stores, and yeah. that does uh, lend itself to some of the larger wine companies in terms of an yeah. advantage. Uh, but the the stores in Ontario also have a vintages section, like a fine wine section, um, and that's where you see a lot more of the the premium fine wine end of Australia and from other countries as well. Yeah, and that's a reflection of who is on the buying panel for those companies. And so in Sweden, there were three stores that were different. So there was one in Malmö, one in Gothenburg, and one in Stockholm, which I happened to live near, which was no accident. But I could walk, <laughs> I could walk in there and buy a single vineyard, giant steps Pinot Noir from. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and stuff like so. You've just got to, you've got to mine through a little bit. But what, what was your perception of Australian wine before you got here, then, Andrea? My views were that they were really high quality wines that had a lot of intensity and fruit. Um, when I was studying in Bordeaux, there was a lot of um, anxiety amongst the Bordelais about what the Australians were doing. I think the Bordelais were worried that Australia was going to take over the world at that point. This really? Was really wow. Uh, and they were a little bit disdainful of Australian wine, which to me, uh, meant that actually Australia must be doing some really good things if, <laughs> if the they were a bit worried. So, Got the uh, Frenchies I, on the run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I mean, they talked a lot about, you know, um, bag and box or cask wine. Oh, yeah. and, and, and now we see that really being used from the more premium end, which is exciting as well. I think that's a really great um, opportunity in terms of a change of direction in packaging. So, uh, I think Australia was a force to be reckoned with, uh, you know, 20 years ago, and I had a pretty open view about the wines. And when I got here, they they certainly struck me as having a huge amount of intensity of fruit, of, of concentration and, and structure. And, um, yeah, I was really impressed. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things where when I was over and the, all the sommeliers and all the, you know, Michelin star two and three restaurants in Northern Europe just bagged out on Australian wines. And so I said, let's have a little competition. So everybody brings two wines and I'll bring one from my portfolio and I'll bring one other Australian wine. So it's like, what what do you take to show Europeans what we can do? So for me, it was stuff like Best's Pinot Meunier, the old vine, or Clonacilla Shiraz Viognier, things like yeah. that. And they all just thought they were the best wines ever. They loved them. I think that's the thing is that um, sometimes the perception of Australian wine overseas is that it's all warm climate, rich, full-bodied Shiraz and, yeah. and big Cabernets. And yet this country now produces some of the finest Chardonnays in the world, some mm. amazing We're growing uh, things like Menthia and Fiano. So it's super exciting and there's such a range of style. And, um, and that diversity is really what makes Australia great. I think the other thing is that we don't have all of the regulations that they do over there. You know, like like you said, you can just throw some Fiano in the ground in McLaren Vale because it seems to suit. Yeah, I mean, a little bit more science around it these days about what you put <laughs> in, right? But but we can do anything, you know, so we can have that um, McLaren Vale Shiraz and Menthea and Fiano all just down the road from each other yeah. and bring in whatever you sort of feel is what, you know, the, the public are going to... Like in the next, you know, ten years. Probably the best example of that would be Philip Jones, who planted Bass Philip scientifically, a hundred percent with the soils and everything, all Bordeaux varieties. 
and he thought that was going to work. Mm. And, of course, it didn't. So didn't. He, he was like, well, I guess I'm grafting some pinot over. <coughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, the flexibility here is probably key mm. to what we can do in the industry. Mm. Absolutely. And we've learned a lot as an industry over the last you know, 20, 30 years in terms of what performs well in what regions and, and what doesn't. But uh, there was still a lot of pioneering uh, winemaking going on in the uh, 80s and 90s, and I think we're now benefiting from that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of what's, <laughs> what's going on and some of the great wines, you were just at the Len Evans tutorial. So before we get into some of those wines that you tasted, would you like to give our listeners an insight into what that particular thing is? Sure. So the Len Evans tutorial is a five-day seminar uh, for Australian wine professionals and it started 20 years ago uh, when the late uh, Levin Evans was still alive. Len Evans is considered the godfather of the Australian uh, wine uh, scene. Um, he was very instrumental in promoting Australian wine in the 1960s and 70s and, uh, and 80s and beyond. And he was also uh, a larger-than-life personality as well. So he um, had a lot of great connections with the, the wonderful states in um, in France and in Europe, and he also was a tireless promoter of Australian wines um, into the UK uh, as well. So um, he established this while he was still alive, really to help set a foundation uh, of education for the Australian wine trade to help them become better wine show judges and to expose them to the fine wines of the world, um, which wouldn't have all already been the case because a lot of fine wine, of, sorry, wine professionals in Australia work, you know, in production as viticulturalists, as winemakers, uh, and they're not necessarily seeing those uh, wines from around the world. So it was really a chance to showcase those wines, expose uh, wine professionals to those and hope uh, or help them actually become better wine show judges and therefore help the wine industry in Australia. Yeah, and so back back in those days, I think it was still Ian Riggs, Ian Leslie Riggs from Broken Woods and probably James Halliday and possibly Gary Steele. I'm not sure who's a, uh, an importer of wines. Um, was that Was that the sort of... The, the seminar-type professionals that were running it, or were there other people? Yeah, so Ian Riggs or Riggsy was definitely there. Um, James Halliday uh, couldn't attend uh, yep. for the first time. Um, uh, and there was a bit of a change of guard as well. So we had people like uh, Tom Carson from uh, Yabby Lake. Yeah. We had Sam Conu from Stargazer. We had Sarah Crow from Yarra Yaring. Uh, we had Jim Chatto. Um, so a whole range of um, previous scholars as well, now kind of taking over the reins, um, uh, Liz Jackson from Silkman Wines. So it was really great to have that wider diversity of panels every day. Uh, but Ian Reeves was still very much front and centre. We had Michael Hill Smith, Master of Wine, also on, on the panel there for a couple of days too. Yeah, that sounds pretty enticing, Simon. Like you've the, the creme de la the creme, of the who's who in the zoo of Australian wines, yeah. from from Crowy to Riggsy. Um, and uh, we were just talking off air as well. So for the first time, there was a little bit of a focus on one of the, well, great Australian varieties, but something that we don't talk about on show judging that much, and that would be Patrick Walsh and Riesling. Yeah, absolutely. We had the chance for the first time to do an entire 30 wine bracket of Riesling as a judging 
bracket. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. Riesling is my favorite variety. It's Wait. the one I'm running out of at home. Uh, and I'm a bit of a Riesling nut. So for me, I was in uh, seventh heaven, just tasting through a phenomenal bracket of Rieslings from all over the world uh, and really a top tier caliber across the board. Mm. Oh, God. I mean, what about you, Simon? Are you a bit of a Riesling yeah, man? I am very much so. Have you got a preference? Um, for stylistically, well, I mean, it's or? like Beatles or Elvis, right? So then it would be Clare Valley or Eden Valley in Australia, wouldn't it? Clare would be probably. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, and probably Watervale. And it sounds pretty obvious, you know, that lemon lime thing. But I don't know. I, yeah. Um, probably. Yeah. Clare, I I'm, I'm more of a Canberra guy when it. I'm just going to yeah. show my local colours. Clonakilla Riesling is just has such drive to it and such energy. It's one of my favourite Australian wines. Mm. And but even you know Knights Granite Hills, yeah, Lou you know, makes pretty good reasons. Yeah. There's some great stuff. So, from um, when you had your thirty wines as a, um, a you know a panel to judge, were they all similar? You know, were they all in a sort of a range of a style, or were they thirty you know different styles of, of Riesling to showcase everything? They they were completely different styles, yeah. and they. Mixed in the bracket, so it wasn't that we tasted dry through to sweet. There was dry, sweet, off dry, semi sweet. Mm. Those kinds of styles, all the way through, and from uh, quite a wide range of places. Obviously, some real Australian classics like Rosset. Uh, we had um, some uh, beautiful wines, also from the Mosel Valley. So there were um, Prune uh, oh. in there. We had wines from Alsace, from uh, Trimbach. Um, and some other great German producers from the Faltz, et cetera. So it was a real range of style uh, across the board, but you know, the, the quality was phenomenal. Have you had the 22 Grosset Aaliyah, Simon? Not the 22. That's, I've had that wine before. So that to me was just because uh, we Jeff did a tasting recently, um, more street wines, you know, supplies these wines. Tony Noll, friend of the show. Hey, Tony, um, here in Melbourne. And that Aaliyah was just so wonderful. And I, I cracked it out in the masterclass just as a sort of bonus wine when I was talking about everyone's like, oh, wines have to be dry, blah, blah, blah. It's only about eight grams of residual sugar per it's litre. So perfectly in balance. Oh, my Lord. Balance yeah. is the word. Mm. Uh, and I think people, I don't know, Andrea, do you think people are, are, are still a little bit of a, afraid of drinking, say, a German raisin because they think it's all going to be sweet? There is that concern still, uh, perhaps more amongst older wine drinkers than younger people um, because of that, uh, probably the exposure of German wine in the Australian market was on the sweeter side. Um, but certainly I teach wine. Um, that's my business, Wine Intuition. And we um, are always talking about, you know, the different styles of Riesling. And when I ask my classes, you know, who's drinking Riesling, almost the entire class raises their hand. So I think that younger generation of people are really much more open minded about the different styles of Riesling and understand that there's not just the, the sweet styles. Mm. And it's about the right tool for the job, which we often say, mm. you know, so it's you know, you're not going to sit in the sun drinking a Trocken beer and Oslace, you know, like it's just... If it's, you want it, that's well, fine can, as well. But, but you know, yeah. you, you want a crisp, dry <laughs> one, you know, for that yeah. sort of situation, whereas it's, I know Wester used to love the, the you know, cabinet yeah. um, style and... Um, Good afternoon wine, you know, 8% alcohol maybe the... And, and, and they have such food friendliness, you know, you can drink them... What I like is those slightly off-dry Rieslings... 
with very spicy Asian food, mm. particularly kung totally. po chicken or something, uh, goes very well. Right tool for the job's the correct term. Mm. Yeah, that's a match made in heaven. That one. Oh yeah, yeah that's great. And it, you know, and I say this quite often. They need to make it in half bottles because you just want it with your meal, right? You don't want it with the before because you probably haven't got the heat in the entrees and then, you know, you just want it then. But if you haven't got a whole gang to have that, that spicy yeah. meal with that perfect match, then you've got this wine. I suppose you could take I it I think home we could be better with that in Australia. Working for Dan Murphy's, I know that we're, you know, and no offence to my business, I love working for Dan Murphy's, but we're not great with half bottles. You know, it's it's mm. um, and it's cost prohibitive maybe for the producers sometimes to yeah. to, to bottle them and export them. I don't know, but um, so just put the cap back on and take it home. Well, and a half bottle bring something just, else out. I was going to say a, a half bottle is just a regular <laughs> bottle, isn't it? Because I drink everything from Magnum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're saying I don't understand. Only half double Magnums in my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andrea, um, I was interested in in reading it, um, your bio. Um, that you were a buyer for Qantas at one stage? Yes, for their wine club. So it was called Qantas Epicure at the time. It's now called oh, yeah. Qantas Wine. So for the frequent flyer part of the business. Um, and that was a great job. I worked with uh, Claudia Lil, who's still there. And uh, we had a terrific time sourcing and buying wines for Qantas frequent flyers. So these weren't wines that needed to, to be on board? No, we had a slightly different job to mm. Trent, who was the buyer for the airline. He had a much narrower scope of wines he had to purchase, but he also had to get a significant number of those into those really small PET uh, lightweight bottles. Mm. And so he had a lot of logistical uh, nightmare uh, issues in terms of just managing stock and inventory. Claudia and I um, had a little bit more free reign because we were basically operating as a retailer. So mm. we had but uh, an extensive range of Australian, mostly Australian wines with a little bit of French champagne. I think they've expanded the range quite significantly now. Yeah, that, that would have been fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Was, was Pete Nixon around when you were there? No, he had left the business by then, um, but, um, yeah, he had worked with Claudia um, back in the day, so, yeah. Mm. We, um, we chatted with, um, with someone who bought wine for Cathay, and, oh, right. he's, and they used to do the tasting in Hong Kong. And he said we would we'd look at these wines in Australia, then we'd ship them all over, and then we'd sit down and we'd go, why are these wines? Why did we choose this wine? It's mm. so different. And what they realised is that the that that actual movement through the air, getting them over there, it was similar to bottle shock. Yeah. So when they were looking at them, it was too they hadn't had time to settle, you know, as you would do in the winery once you've just bottled, right? So and they once they worked that out, and there was sort of no rhyme or reason, and different vintages were different, but but that was something that they found was a real a real um, issue. And of course, the ha- having the correct amount of humidity on the planes, because not all of the planes have the right humidity to taste and drink properly. So it's only the and it dries you. Yeah, nose I think out it's only the Airbus A three eighty that's actually correctly humidified. So it, wines taste quite different on planes, obviously. They do, and it, that bottle shock phenomenon is quite well known, and it's something to keep in mind if you're bringing a special bottle over for a friend. And um, mm. years, you know, I usually tell my friends like just wait for you know a few weeks, maybe a couple of months before you open it because they they do need time to settle down after they've been flying. Yeah, oh, good little is, tip. <laughs> <laughs> which is like us too, I suppose. Um, yeah. Now, what th- 
The final kind of tasting of the Len Evans tutorial, Andrea, is quite famous in wine circles. Can you tell us a little bit about that for our listeners and what's so famous about it? Sure. So the last morning we taste a bracket of Domaine de la Romani Conti, so all of the Grand Cru's of uh, that very heralded estate in Burgundy. And uh, we are asked to identify the vintage or suggest a vintage and also to try and identify which Grand Cru is which um, in the lineup, which is a very uh, big ask because um, certainly for me, uh, leading up to the Len Evans tutorial, I had tasted zero Domaine de la Romani Conti. <laughs> Funnily enough, I had never been in the right place at the right time or with the right people um, to taste those wines. And we did actually have a few during the tutorial. Uh, we had two beautiful 08, uh, a Grand Echezo and an Echezo at one dinner. And we also had two in the actual Pinot Noir uh, judging bracket. Mm. So up until Friday morning, I had had the sum total of four uh, different ERC wines. And then we were asked to kind of identify uh, the, the wines blind. So in the Pinot Noir judging section, did they win that bracket? In the blind well, that's, really funny. that's actually kind of a funny story because the second <laughs> line in was uh, was a DRC, um, I think it was a 2015 Echezo. And I thought it was the bee's knees. I thought it was terrific. I, I gave it 96 points. I was all you know, very excited. But actually the panel didn't think very much of it when they looked at it. And they um, thought it was looking too advanced, too forward for its vintage. I didn't know specifically what year it was from. I didn't know that it was DRC. I just thought it was terrific. So when they asked for my score, I, I gave it gold. And then the panel actually um, didn't think that much of it in the end. <laughs> but when I found out what it was, I thought, well, I still really like it. And, that's uh, vindication, I, I reckon. <laughs> but it, that's actually an interesting point, Andrea, because I've been, in, I've been in panels before where you just absolutely adore a wine and it gets kind of naysayed by everybody. And it's hard to pull it back after that point, isn't it? It can be. I think with wine show judging, you really have to be able to justify why you've awarded uh, a wine a gold medal. And it can't just be about the aromas and flavors. It has to be about the structure of the wine, the balance, the length, um, the complexity. And if, if those components are there, then you have a much stronger position to argue for quality. Um, and I really felt in that case with the with the DRC that, yeah, the quality was was there. I didn't think it looked forward, but um, I probably do like a bit of, um, you know, more advanced uh, old wine anyway. <laughs> yeah, and so talking, talking a little bit about the structure of the wines just before we finish, um, there is something about the structure of those great Burgundy vineyards, isn't there? They, they have a tannin structure and a drive to them that, that are unparalleled everywhere else. Is that a is that a fair thing to say, do you think? It is. And I think particularly with the wines of DRC, there is a signature uh, amongst the, the house. So there's a, there's a house style, if you will. Yeah. And there's also uh, an incredible depth and complexity to the wines that really stands out in a lineup. Um, and that's why they are so famous, because they are so incredibly expressive of their place. Yeah, I yeah. unfortunately was ruined because the first ever DRC I tasted was an 85 Echezo and it was like, 
I've been chasing that dragon ever since. <laughs> uh, that was a, and I wasn't ready for it. That was just yeah, a gift yeah. from the owner of Tarawari, and we were tasting Mr. Beast and just decided to open these crazy 85s from his uh, cellar, and I was wow. like, what is this stuff? I had no idea. Um, that's crazy, isn't it? Oh, like, my so goodness, yeah. I've been trying to find... You wouldn't give back the experience. I'm eh? trying to get that experience back, but yeah. it's not going to happen. Um, hey, Andrea, just before we do go, we've got a couple of questions from people who have been listening in Um what what was your favourite wine um, the, uh, during the Len Evans tutorial? Uh, and also, um, Matt asks, was there any great discovery or revelation moment um, throughout the, the week? That's a good question. Mm. So there were so many phenomenal wines. Um, mm. I enjoyed that. It's sort of hard to pinpoint a favourite. We had a 1922 Olivera um, Zira. Uh, which I pretty much almost wept when I drank that. <laughs> I think from the 1920s, if you get a chance to to taste a wine that was still incredibly alive, that was... Um, 100 un- years old, yeah. Mm, unbelievable. Um, and uh, the 2008 uh, Grand Echezo and Echezo Pair were, were phenomenal as well. We also had a 1965 bracket one evening of Australian wines and the Orlando Barossa Cabernet from 1965 was just stunning. So just a few of the highlights. I mean, it was ridiculously hedonistic. Um, in terms of what I uh, learned or sort of insights, I, I learned a lot. I really enjoyed the tutorial because as a wine educator, I don't get a chance to be a student very often. So just listening to the panel members talk about wine and also my fellow scholars who were an amazing group of people. I learned so much from them, uh, winemakers from across the country, uh, wine writers, viticulturalists, um, trade people, just amazing group. And listening to them describe wine, talk about what they were doing, I learned a, a huge amount. So it was really rewarding. It's fantastic. What an experience. And then to ducks it as, uh, you know. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> in, in my view, the whole group is ducks. I yeah. Mean, we had, yeah. They were just an amazing bunch and I feel really privileged to have shared the experience with them. And, you know, that's the theme that comes through every single time. Yeah. And, you know, we had, um, yeah, it's just anyone who's either been ducks or been on it, it's just like, wow, I'm just so honoured to actually be here. You know, amongst oh, all it's, of these it's people. A, it's an incredibly massive achievement to even get into the thing. Yeah, you yeah. Know? I mean, it's one of those. But you've got to want to be a show judge too, right? So it's kind of there's, there is a certain angle to it. And, yeah, um, yeah. congratulations, Andrea. Yeah. It's fab- fabulous. Thank you very much. Yeah, and you just have to keep applying too. I think it was my fourth or fifth application anyway. So it's not- <laughs> there you go. The MW didn't help you for early on in the <laughs> – so, uh, yeah. Um, Andrew, lovely to meet you and um, we'll uh, no doubt have a chance to chat yeah. again um, about something in, in the world of wine. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks very much, Simon and Richo. It's been great to be here with you. Excellent. Thank you.